Good evening, everybody. Welcome back for our final class on the Fellowship of the Ring. So, um, as usual, I'm sort of despairing of <clears throat> actually getting to cover everything that I wanted to cover. I hope to hit on some of the, the, the main things. And tonight, as I said last time, you know, we spent a lot of time with, uh, with dwarves and dwarfdom, um, uh, last night and tonight, I want to spend time with the elves in Elvendom, and in particular, of course, Lothlorien and Galadriel. And since we're kind of on a roll that way, we're going to do some more poetry tonight too. I especially want to look at Galadriel's songs. So, um, okay. So let us jump straight into it uh, uh, before we before we lose any time. So, okay. Nimrodel. We didn't quite get to Nimrodel last time. We got as far as the Bridge of Khazad-dûm and no further than that. Um, so I want to begin our experience with the elves in the same way that the Fellowship does, namely with Nimrodel, the story of Nimrodel, and Nimrodel's stream that they cross through. Um, what do you make of that? That's, of course, it's another classic example of one of those sort of stories within a story that Tolkien tells, or sort of half-tells. We get the song about what happened with Nimrodel. Um... It certainly adds, you know, depth and history to the story, and helps also to transition from Moria into Lothlorien. We were because we were told um, uh, that is Legolas tells us that uh, the people of Nimrodel began to leave when you know the dwarves awakened evil in the mountain. So, so, uh, uh, so again, we can see sort of some of the consequences of to the elven world there um, by the awakening of the Balrog, whom we've just met. So, what do you make of the Nimrodel song? What, you know, again, I you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't, uh, I didn't get this typed out. I didn't, uh, you know, we're not going to look at this one in detail. Um, how does the Nimrodel song serve to introduce us to elves? Now, of course, we don't need to be totally introduced from scratch to elves, right? We've met elves. Our first introduction to elves was Gildor, whom we kind of glanced at briefly as we went by. And then, of course, we get Glorfindel and his uh, sort of his introduction of us into Rivendell and Elrond's house. Um, but Lothlorien is different. What are we told about Nimrodel? What are some of the... What are some of the sort of functions of the Nimrodel story, do you think? How do they seem to relate to the rest of the Elven story? How do they prepare us for Lothlorien? They, it, it is the transition point. As I say, it's literally the, um, the, uh, the, 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 the crossing point, you know, where they enter into the woods. Um, but it also serves as a transition in a greater sense than that. Uh, good, Nate, I agree. I think that's a great point. Nate says that it's a contrast to Aragorn's last tale, uh, the Baron and Luthien story. In this case, the lovers do not end up together. It provides a contrast and shows it might not all uh, work out for him. Yeah, I, I, I agree. There, It is a kind of a cautionary thing. Um, all great love stories don't end happily. Um, it is, as Jeff says, a poem of sadness. There's real regret and longing there, and I agree, it's it's a kind of regret and longing, um, a kind of sadness that is characteristic of the elves. Um, they are... Um, their culture is marked by these kinds of memories um, that they hold on to, the memories of loss. Um, and as Giselle says, it is beautiful and sad. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And in that way, a lot like the elves. Yes, both beautiful and sad. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I think that, that that in itself, and and again, and that sense of that sense of 
that sense of loss, not just of the sort of the tragic end of Nimrodel and Amroth's story themselves, but of um, but of the you know like the, the what used to be in this in this region. You know that you know there's there used to be a bridge of Nimrodel, and she used to have her house here, and um, you know it's. It, but again, the, her, she and her people have all left, and so you know the the beauty that was here is now gone. Again, it's beyond her own personal story. Um, we can see the diminish the diminishing of the realm of Lorien as well. It used to be greater, um, and Nimrodel is one of the ways in which we are introduced to that idea, to the shrinking of the realm of Lorien. So, um, um, so yeah, and, but of course you notice also, there's still a remnant of that. That is the sort of semi-healing properties of the stream of Nimrodel, um, how it washes away the weariness from Frodo. You know, he feels that, uh, the, the feel of that water on his feet is like no other water he's ever felt, and, um, it seems actually to wash the weariness away from him. So, um, so again, there's there's a remnant there. Um, you know, it is more than just uh, um, it's more than just sadness. It's more than just um, uh, loss. There is there is a lingering effect which still um, which still has an impact on them uh, and an impact on them for good, even though um, again it is about uh, loss and reduction. Um, yeah, yeah, Sarah, that is interesting. The other way it serves as a transition into their actual encounter with the elves. As Sarah points out, it's interesting that Haldir knows he can trust Legolas to a certain extent after hearing him sing it. Yes. Um, yeah, he, he, uh, it is, it is hearing his singing the song of, of Nimrodel that confirms them that, you know, he, he's, he is probably not an enemy. Um, that, and I agree, that is an interesting connection. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Liza, I agree. It, I think it does foreshadow the shrinking of the power of the three elven rings. The whole, it's not just Lorien that's fading away. The whole, um, you know, the whole, the time of the elves is coming to an end. Um, all of the works of the elves are fading and being lost. And soon there will barely be memories. In fact, we've already seen this happening. Remember the Kingdom of Holland. The Kingdom of Holland has fallen and you know, as Legolas says, the, you know, that that only the stones remember them. Um, they are they have been forgotten by all, by the by the beasts and by the trees. Nobody remembers the elves of Holland except the stones, um, and Lothlorien is headed that way too. So yeah, it's you know, all of Elvendom on Earth is headed in that direction. Um, so I think that we are being kind of oriented towards this sort of beautiful sadness, towards the fading, towards the loss, and also those lingering effects um, on uh, um, on the people in here in here in Middle Earth. Um, yes, Caden, of course, you're right that of course in Valinor the elves are not fading, um, but uh, but yes, their 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 kingdoms here in Middle Earth are. Um, yeah. Good, good. Yeah, Sharon says, when the elves are lost, it is a great blow to all the elves. Uh, when elves are lost, it is a great blow to all the elves, because elves do not forget and are immortal. The pain never seems to fade. Absolutely, there's um, emphasis at several points of the burden of memory on the elves, um, that as time goes on, um, their memories are, you know, a greater and greater burden. Um, 
Yeah, good. Now, Casey asks a really interesting question. Were there any signs of fading in Rivendell? Not in this way, I don't think. I mean, we do have... Um, you know, it's of course in Rivendell. It's in the in the in the Council of Rivendell. We do hear about it. I mean, we hear about the fading of the Firstborn. How there can be no more alliance like the last alliance. Um, you know, stuff like that. But I think, I think that your question points to an important distinction. Um, we don't have that emphasis on fading and diminishing in Rivendell to the same extent. That's not what we're shown. That's not what we see. When we, I mean, again, think of the House of Fire, uh, the Eärendil song, uh, and the Elbereth Gilthoniel song that we hear afterwards. Not just the song itself, but the way that it's being sung, that sort of, you know, the, the picture that we get, you know, when Frodo turns around, that he, he and Bilbo are about to sneak off, and then he sees, you know, Elrond and Arwen and, and Aragorn there, and they look, you know, glorious and splendid, and, you know, there we see sort of a glimpse of, you know, elf lords as of old. Um, the emphasis is not, I think, on fading to the same extent. Um, so I think that this is it's one of the important things that we get from Galadriel and from Lothlorien, and Nimrodell is the beginning part of that. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, let's see, okay, Nate says, um, you know, others tell tales of historic, of heroic ancestors and great deeds. Um, Aragorn does, that is in the Baron and Luthien song. Uh, Gimli does in the Durin song we looked at last time, even Boromir in a way. All Legolas tells us is of things that are lost. Nimrodel and what he thinks of Ents before meeting one. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, there is that emphasis on, on, on loss and diminishing. It's a really important um, aspect of the elves as Tolkien depicts them. Depicts them. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree, Jeff. Galadriel and Celeborn do have a different angle. They are much older. I mean, you know, Elrond goes on about how old he is, right, at the Council of Elrond. Um, he is a really recent addition compared to Galadriel. Um, and even to Celeborn. They've been around much longer. Um, so yes, Jeff, I do think it's fair to say that they have witnessed more of the fading, that they're sort of more in tune to that. But it's not like... I mean, Elrond has been around for thousands of years, so it's not like he's totally unaware of the fading process. Um, but I agree. In one of the things that we do see in Goadrio and Celeborn is that a greater connection to the distant past. Um... That seems that does seem right to me. Um, yeah, yeah, interesting. Sarah says they talk about the forest of Mirkwood not so much fading as darkening. Yeah, um, and that's of course that's really one way of thinking about the tragedy, right? I mean, they have two choices, as is made plain by the um, by the bringing of the ring, you know, in the confrontation when Galadriel's talking to Frodo about the ring, there are really, there are two things that can happen to them. They can, you know, the, the, there are two options, and neither option is really good, right? Their option is either to be destroyed by darkness, or to overcome the darkness, which just means that they will slowly fade and diminish. Um, and in fact, the very overcoming of the darkness will accelerate the diminishing. Um, 
so as they say, you know, there is no good outcome. This is why Galadriel says, you see now why you're coming to us is as the stroke of doom. Um, this can't end well for the elves. Um, you know, this can't, they can't have things stay the same anymore. Um, they're not going to be able to, to, to delay, um, because, yeah, it's either a bad outcome or a worse outcome in some sense. Um, yeah, good. Um, let's see. Um, okay, Caden, I'll bite on your off-topic question. Um Caden asks, would Tom Bombadil lose power if the old forest was destroyed? No, I don't think so. Um, I don't think his power is derived from the, the, the forest, certainly, even from the land in particular. Um, so, uh, no, I don't think so. I think that he is more independent of it than that. Um, he speaks of entering into it, not originating from it. Um, I don't think that his power is tied to it. Um, but the reason I bit Caden on this off-topic question is that I think it does draw some attention. Galadriel is not linked to the land in this way, in that same way either. Um, her relationship with it is different from Tom Bombadil's. And actually, I think that that's a good thing to have in the back of our minds. Um, that is the relationship between T Tom Bombadil and his little region. And remember in particular that conversation between Goldberry and Frodo, where um, Frodo says, you'll remember, so all the trees and everything belong to him? And she says, no, you know, everything belongs each to itself. Tom Bombadil is master. Right? Remember that. Remember what Goldberry has said about the relationship between Tom and the, and the, and the country. And then recall that when we're looking at Galadriel and her relationship to this country. Um, okay, let's see. Yeah, Sharon, I'm... I agree with you, though I think it could. we could also see it almost in the, the, the opposite sense at the same time, if that makes sense and doesn't seem simply wishy-washy. What Sharon says is... Um, the Lothlorien elves and realm are presented in a loftier, more mystical way. Uh, they mention magic here, but Rivendell seems a bit more everyday. Yes, it is. I mean, going into Rivendell is going to a beautiful place, right? Um, but it isn't like passing into a land that time forgot, like you have stepped out of time. I mean, none of those things that are said when they cross into 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 Lothlorien are said um, when they uh, when they cross into into Rivendell. It's just not the same experience, um, and it is more everyday in one sense, in that sense. But also, there is a sense in which it's almost I don't know. I said, I think you could almost do the opposite, too. Um, well, maybe not. I mean, it certainly is more in contact with the outside world. Um, or at least seems to be. That is, we have other non-elves there on a regular basis. But, um, I don't know, having a hard time putting into words exactly the way I wanted to respond to that. Um, I get. I think what I'm trying to say is, the elves of Lothlorien are tied, are connected to their land in a way that Elrond is not. It's his is a like the way that they live in the trees, and he lives in the last homely house. He, um, you know, in this secret valley. Um, his 
little place is a set-aside place, um, whereas the elves are sort of more a part of the landscape, however special that landscape is. Do you see what I mean by that? Um, so in some ways, there is something more of a kind of retreat or even kind of monastery air that, that's not a good metaphor at all, but do you see what I mean? Something set aside. Um, in a way, of course, there are boundaries around Lothlorien, but it still is it still is a part, is sort of an integrated part of the geography, if you understand what I mean, and they, the elves, are integrated with it. Um, I mean, it's well protected, and it's got the rivers, and, you know, when you cross it, it's magical, but... Um, Again, I don't know if I'm arti- if I'm articulating that well, but I can kind of see that both ways. Um, okay. Um, oh, good. Several more comments. Um, yeah, Sarah. Rivendell is a sanctuary. That's a good way of saying it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and Nate uh Nate also says Elrond is described as a master and almost as a scholar. And that's one of the things that I was thinking of too. Um Galadriel clearly is the ruler of her world. Elrond has no realm, right? He is he is set apart um in a way that you know, again Rivendell is more like a retreat center than a kingdom. Um and so again it's I'm certainly not disagreeing with you, Sharon, but I, I do... There there are ways in which I think that, um, yes, Rivendell is more accessible and is sort of closer, but it's also more more separate, in a sense. Um, enemies can't even find Rivendell, generally. I mean, like, an army of orcs wouldn't wander out of the mountains into Lothlorien. If they do, they don't escape. Uh, that is, they do wander into Othorian. They wouldn't wander into Rivendell. Um, but... Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good way to uh, describe it, Nate. Nate says, Elrond's knowledge is emphasized, but for Galadriel, it's her power. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, I'm probably making too much of this, but... Um, yeah. Well, yeah, Sharon, as for the role, the function or the role that they play in the story, um, it certainly seems... Um, Elrond's... One of, the, one of the primary things emphasized about Elrond is that he's the great lore master, right? He's a healer and lore master. He's the one who can heal Frodo. And, and, he, and he's a lore master. He starts off the council by giving the long background history of the rings and how they came to be forged and the, the, the last alliance and everything else. Um, so that's... Um, um, that is his primary function. Um, is to sort of give them, sort of explain the background, give them some context, and also he's the one with the wisdom, which in his case means the perception. To under, you know, he's the one who says things like, if I understand aright all that I have heard, I believe this task is appointed for you, Frodo. Um, he's not stating that. He's not, he's not expressing authority in saying that. You know, Frodo, I command you to take the ring. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, um, he's expressing perception. Like, I perceive, and that's his wisdom, based upon everything that I've heard, 
it sounds like it sounds like this this that that seems right that seems like the right answer um goadriel is in a different place and is doing something different and i want to think about i want to be thinking about that what is her role of course i want to move on and actually look at some passages with her and her songs before we try to come to a conclusion about that but um yeah yeah um Oh, Liza, really great distinction. Liza says, Elrond is preserving knowledge. Galadriel is preserving the world as it was and as she wanted it to be. Yeah, or at least a, l- a chunk of it, right? Yes, that's a huge difference. Um, but I think a very important one that really does get to a major distinction between Galadriel and Elrond. I think that's really good. Um, okay. Let's see. Uh, one last question here before we move on. Um, uh, Timothy is asking, is asks a, a, a good question. Why will the elves fade and diminish? Why do they have to? Um, it's like, why do we sort of take that for granted? And of course, we're given reasons inside the story, um, which have to do with the destruct with the the destruction of the ring of power and uh, and therefore the weakening of the three rings and it's by the th- power of the three rings that um, you know we have this especially in Lothlorien this preservation um, of these realms but but I mean ultimately I think the answer to that I mean within the story it's not fully explained. I mean, we don't get within the story the answer. This is exactly why, how it was decreed. Um, Not within the Lord of the Rings. It is a fact. It's a fact that we get from the beginning. Remember that Sam introduces us to. They are sailing, sailing. They're sailing away and leaving us. Um, That's that again. That's where where, that where that gets hit on at the very beginning. Um, So we're introduced to that. We know this, but I think the. the way that we... It's a couple things. Trish says, you know, it's like the medieval world model of everything in decline. Um, Yes, though it's more true of the elves than of humans. I mean, yes, humans are declining, um, but they're not fading away. Um, This is one of the things that... um, I mean, I guess what my main answer to this question would be, this is an idea which is rooted in... um, which is rooted in Tolkien's idea of elves from the very beginning. I mean, if you go back to his first writings, if you go back to you know the Book of Lost Tales stuff, um, one of the premises from which he starts is um, recall that the fictional frame of the story is that these stories are taking place in our world. This is not a separate world. This is the ancient history of Europe. And that these lands um, in Middle-earth are the lands which will eventually become um, the northwest portions of, of, the, old, um, of the old kingdom, that is, of, of Europe. So this is, this is this, all of the stuff that we're reading about is hitherto untold prehistory of our world. That's part of the, the fictional premise of these stories. And as such, Tolkien accepted, um, in setting out that way, which he did from the very start, um, what Tolkien kind of begins with is the fact that in the modern world, we don't see elves anymore, and that they have diminished. He started off with, as I mentioned before, uh, when we were talking about the the the, uh, the errantry poem and the, the, the little... Um, you know the the little sprightly uh, elfin hero of that who you know who is 
going around with butterflies and um, bu- fighting bumblebees and everything. Um, you know that that kind of you know diminutive little elf fairy um, that was the remaining modern perception. Again, one of the things that Tolkien was doing in his initial writings was explaining how did they get there? How did they get from uh, you know the first? How, how do you get from Baron and Luthien to um, Puck in Titania and Oberon? Um, how do you get there? And his answer is fading, diminishing, um, and that there's real that and that and it becomes and it is from the beginning in Tolkien's conception a tragic story, a tragic loss. It is sad and beautiful that the, there is still lingering magic in the world and in places where elves were, and there are still places in the world that have memory of elves, and there are even still places that are still touched occasionally uh, by elves, even if in a even if in a in a in, in a faded and diminished way. But but it's but it's diminished. We you, you don't meet them anymore. Um, if Sam is lamenting that they're sailing and sailing away, our position is far worse. They have sailed. They're gone, um, and now only the stones remember them. Um, so that's basically the world that we live in, essentially. Um, and Tolkien is describing how we got here. Um, so that I think is. Um, that's that's basically the, the 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 overarching elf story, which seems to underlie Tolkien's conceptions from the very beginning, and all of the other answers within the story. That is, you know, any other details you want to get into from the Silmarillion about the, you know, the the the, the going over to Valinor and the exile and the being able to return from exile and all of that stuff, is still like the mechanism of Tolkien's of how Tolkien works out this fundamental aspect of his mythology, which actually, though it changes in details, is one of the things which is most consistent in all of Tolkien's mythology, is this idea of the fading and declining and the disappearance of of the firstborn, of the elves. Um, um, No, uh, Timothy, I disagree. It is not a tautology to say that they must diminish because they have diminished. Um, that's not true. It's not a tautology. That would be like saying, I see something lying on the floor. It must have fallen. How do I know that? Because it has fallen. It's, it's, it is observing the current state of a thing and saying, if we believe that the, that, the, that, that the thing there on the floor has not always been on the floor, if I know that that vase on the floor used to be on the countertop and I come in and see it on the floor, I can conclude that it has fallen. That's the way that Tolkien was approaching the elves, that he had both of those concepts very firmly in mind, that he, um, that again, looking around at the world says there is, you know, magic has diminished from the world. Um, but also looking at, looking at older stories like medieval stories and ancient stories and saying the, you know, the, the magic that they saw, you know, he, and so he had this mythological conception of the world before a fading, um, of, of, of this, of this magic that did exist. Um, and he tells the story of the diminishing and how it came to diminish. But yeah, he does start, but that, but it is basically a fundamental premise. Things have not always been this way. And that's nothing but a kind of a mythological leap on his part. Um, but it's not, but it's not tautological. It's not just circular. Um, it starts with that sort of fundamental, kind of, well, insight. Um, and Caden, it's interesting, uh, Caden says it's missing in The Hobbit. 
Sort of, but not entirely, actually. Um, remember, it's, it, we only get little glimpses of it because we don't really see... Um, we don't really see that much of elf culture uh, and the elf, uh, the elvish point of view in The Hobbit. But there are two moments that we do see it, we do get a glimpse of it, and where we glimpse it is in the references to the ancient elvish past, and in particular the one reference to the ancient elvish past which survives uh, into the published Hobbit is the reference to Gondolin. I say survives because there were others in the very first draft. Um, there's a reference to Baron and Luthien, for instance, which he ended up cutting out. Um, but uh and and there and there's there and there are some other things but the the gondolin references remain in chapter 3 in rivendell they hear about the story of ancient gondolin and the fall of gondolin and they and we're reminded of this again at the beginning of the battle of five armies when the when the elven king and his host step forward to fight the goblins when the goblins appear and we are told about how fierce their hatred for the goblins are because they also have not forgotten the fall of gondolin and we don't know much about gondolin we don't know the whole story of Gondolin, but we are given this idea of this ancient, fabled, incredible city of the elves that was, which has been lost, and that now there's only a remnant and a memory of that. It's not the same, like, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't point directly at the inexorable fading of the elves, but that still that trend of they were greater and now are fewer and lesser um, is, is still... Um, perceptible there. Um, Caden, the relationship between orcs and elves is complicated. Um, and the origin of the orcs story, of, of the orcs, Tolkien told that differently in several different places. Christopher Tolkien chose one to put it in the published Silmarillion, the, the theory about um, elves being taken and corrupted by Morgoth. Tolkien was never really satisfied with that, and it's a tricky thing. Um, and I certainly don't think it is quite fair um, to it's hard cause you just for that reason you can't really take that one to the bank that is you can't take the hatred of the or of the uh, you know the hatred and fear of the orcs by the elves as being related to the origin of orcs because again that origin story is was very complicated and remained complicated to the very Tolkien never made up his mind about that and was still floating some very different theories um later in his life after he'd published The Lord of the Rings. Um, um, yes, let's see. Um, yeah, let's see. Trish says um, that... Um, that it's that it is consistent with our folklore. There are traditions of fairies with the same characteristic of Tolkien's elves and Celtic legends. My impression is that his elves are a riff on the theme, not something he came up with by himself. He certainly was not attempting to just invent something new. Um, that wasn't his goal. He was always moved by the stories of fairy, by the stories of the elves, whether it be those the the the, the Celtic um, uh, legends that you mention, um, other medieval stories, some of which are Celtic, some of which are not, um, but but yes, I mean that those those ideas that the, the concept of fairy of that realm of fairy into which humans pass, um, the encounters that they have with fairy, um, those did captivate him, and he is definitely connecting with that. I mean, he, um, yeah, it's not a question of him trying to sort of invent something new, um, yeah. 
Yeah, Sarah says, I get the same feeling of fading with the dwarves as well, with Moria and the Lonely Mountain, especially in The Hobbit. Um, yeah, again, this th- that that trend of decline is everywhere. We see it as well with Numenor, right? I mean, um, it's, it's again, we're again reminded of it very forcefully when they pass through the Argonath, right? You know, that this is, um, you know, the mighty works of the, of the, you know, the, the, the hands of the men of Numenor who raised these statues, um, you know, as if they were giants. I mean, it's, it's, you know, these colossal statues that people can't even, you know, that the contemporary people can't even imagine figuring out how to build. Um, yeah, so we, we get we get that kind of thing all the time. The the Dunedain, right? Aragorn and the, you know, the, the Northern Rangers. Um, all over the place we see these signs of decline. Um, so that is a general thing, but again, I would say that it's it's a, it's different in quality with the elves, um, and it definitely has a sort of a different impact. Yes, the fourth age is predicted to be the age of man, uh, Trish. Um, so there is a there is a kind of an implication, not that humans are going to go on the on the on the incline in the fourth age. Um, they're still gonna be falling from greatness. Um, the men at the end of the fourth age, or you know whatever far advanced down in the fourth age, are not gonna be like better, greater, stronger than, you know, the Numenorians or whatever. It still is going to be a decline, but um, but the dominion of man is beginning. Um, so, anyway, okay. <laughs> I've been spending all, we've been spending all this time talking, and I'm still on the... the uh, I haven't even gotten to slide number one, so we should probably do that. Let's look at some of the... the there, there are three moments I want to look at. Okay, okay, four. Four moments related to Lothlorien and Galandriel uh, that I want to focus on. And the first is Karen Emroth. We talked about this a little bit. Oh, and by the way, I had uh, I had said that it was Karen, that it was Aragorn who um, said that Karen Amroth was the heart of Elvendom on Earth, and then I kind of, uh, I doubted my, I often do this when I'm in class. I sort of suddenly am gripped like, wait, Am I getting that wrong? It was Aragorn. I was right the first time. Um, anyway, so uh, and again, his um, his thought is that it's um, it's not uh, is 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 sort of more more biased as he's remembering something very particular there. Um, but anyway, let's um, let's let's read carefully Frodo's experience here. Um, Again, even if we think that um, Aragorn might have some very personal reasons, this is the place where he and Arwen basically got engaged. You know, where they where they plighted their troth to each other. Um, so this has a you know very special. Uh, this place has a very special significance for him. Um, so you know he thinks of it as the heart of Elvendom on Earth. Again, as I say, perhaps for other and more personal reasons. But nevertheless, um, we do get that, you know, we were told by uh, Haldir first that it was the heart of the ancient realm of Lorien, um, and then Aragorn says at the end, it's the heart of Elvendom. So it's, it is the heart in two places. And so therefore, it seems fair to look at it and see what we can learn about Elvendom and how Elvendom was... Um, is being depicted in what we are to be associating with it. Um, so let's uh, let's look at this carefully and tell me what you notice. The others cast themselves down upon the fragrant grass, but Frodo stood a while, still lost in wonder. It seemed to him that he had stepped through a high window that looked on a, on a vanished world. A light was upon it for which his language had no name. All that he saw was shapely, 
but the shapes seemed at once clear-cut, as if they had been first conceived and drawn at the uncovering of his eyes, and ancient as if they had endured forever. He saw no color but those he knew, gold and white and blue and green, but they were fresh and poignant, as if he had at that moment first perceived them, and made for them names new and wonderful. In winter here no heart could mourn for summer or for spring. No blemish or sickness or deformity could be seen in anything that grew upon the earth. On the land of Lorien there was no stain. He turned and saw that Sam was now standing beside him, looking round with a puzzled expression, and rubbing his eyes as if he was not sure that he was awake. "'It's sunlight and bright day, right enough,' he said. "'I thought that elves were all for moon and stars, but this is more elvish than anything I ever heard tell of. I feel as if I was inside a song, if you take my meaning.' Now, what do we see here? Tell me again. And here, I think this is a this is a good, uh, a a good passage for trying to sort of see, or rather, a passage in which Tolkien seems to be trying to convey the quality of the sort of elvishness here, the quality of uh, the experience of passing into uh, into fairy, into the realm of the elves here. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Nate says, There have been stains in Elvish history, even Galadriel's own history, although we don't know much about them in The Lord of the Rings, but Galadriel has created a world that does not admit such darkness. Um, Yes, it is a very interesting thing. Um, The land of Lorien... On the land of Lorien there was no stain, not because there is no stain in the people in it. Um, It's not in that sense a kind of spontaneous upwelling of purity. Um, It's fabricated. It's artificial in that sense. Um, um, Yeah, I mean, she has experienced stain. She has learned from them, uh, from, you know, the stuff that she's been through. Um, But yes, she has created a world that does not admit such darkness. That seems to be true. Um, Nate also says, Sam is right that it's inside a song, because Lorian is not in the real world. That's why there's no stain on it. Um, and Jeff also is commenting on being inside a song. He says, I link this back to the song of Iluvatar, with a connection back to creation and shaping the world. Again, there's a sense of deep time in the connection of the elves to that history, um, and to making as well. Um, and we will see later. Remember again this reference to being inside a song. We'll come back to this later on. Uh, Jeff, in, in going in sort of the direction that you already are there. Um, yeah, good, Giselle. The reference to name making. Um, I think that I also think that that's very interesting uh, and very important. Um, a light was upon it for which his language had no name. Um, it reminds me of that line, that line which Tolkien famously called the only philological comment in The Hobbit. Um, you know, when Bilbo is first confronted with the treasure hoard of Thror, and sa- you know, and uh, and the narrator says that there were no words to express his wonderment. Not since all of the names, all of the word, the the words were changed, the names were changed um, since the time um, when. Uh, you know, we first inherited language from the elves. Um, that is, the implication that Tolkien makes in that line in The Hobbit is that 
there were in the original languages of the elves there were words for how wonderful this was but the languages of men and dwarves and hobbits have declined uh, from that and we no longer have the words for wonder anymore certainly human languages don't um, so yes, again, I, and so there I think one of the things that we see, Giselle, is like the comparative poverty of Frodo's language. He doesn't have any words. His language cannot embrace what he's experiencing here. Um, and I think that that's, again, you know, the, the significance of, of, of naming and the penchant of the elves for naming things. We talked about some last time. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, I agree, Sarah. The language isn't quite poetic, that is, it's not rhythmically poetic, um, but it certainly is um, it certainly is getting more poetic in its in its, uh, in its imagery, in its way of talking. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Sharon, very good. Sharon is pointing to the significance of the contrast of ancient and new. Um, she says, the contrast of ancient and new is unique. When we think of old and ancient things, they are worn and mellowed, but Lorien's beauty is still clear-cut, fresh and full. Absolutely, that is the effect of that juxtaposition. He sees paradoxes, right? Something which seems so new and fresh and crisp, it, it's, it's like it had been first conceived and drawn at the uncovering of his eyes. Not just like it's first sprung up, right? But the very colors, the very shapes, seem like they've never been perceived before. Um, and yet, also, it's it's ancient, right? Um, uh, so, so yeah, that that kind of paradox is something that he's clearly trying to point to. Now, what do you make of Sam? Um, Sam has a puzzled expression, right? And he acts like he's not sure he's awake. Um, his comment: "It's sunlight and bright day, right enough. I thought that elves were all for moon and stars, but this is more elvish than anything I ever heard tell of." What do we make of that part? We've talked about his uh, comment that he feels like he's inside a song. Um, what do you make about his reference to sunlight and bright day? Where does that put us? What does that give us as far as how we understand this world? Um, what do you think? Um, Good. Sharon says, again, the contrast between his experience of elves on the other side of the mountain um, in, in Rivendell. Yes. Um, we have seen elves associated with moon and stars, right? Um, the, especially the elves in Rivendell and, um, and Gildor and his people. That's what he's seen. That's what he... Um, you know, I thought elves were all for moon and stars. Well, yeah, uh, based on his experience. Um, but yet he finds the sunlight and bright day of Lorien even more elvish than anything he's ever heard tell of. Um, and it seems to me that one of the things that we're pointing to here is the... Um, yeah, Nate, exactly. Uh, uh, Nate says that Lorien seems to be denying the twilight of the elves. Um, yes, yes. Um, there's, uh, there's definitely... Um, it's not just and Sarah good um, Sarah's 
reminding us of of uh, A. Arendel. Um and of course in the A. Arendel song that we're reminded, you know, he is a star, right? So of course there's another very natural reason why Elrond and his household would be a little bit more star oriented uh, than Goadriel, perhaps. Um, but again, even that, even the orientation towards A. Arendel is an orientation towards tragedy and loss, as we looked at when we when we were reading that poem, right? It's the ending is very sad. It's very noble, and it's very you know he's very self-sacrificing. It's very heroic, but it's sad, and there's serious loss there, in particular to Elrond himself personally, which again is why um, is why. Uh, Aragorn says to Bilbo that it was pretty cheeky to sing that song in Rivendell, um, but um, but yeah, again, there's that, but there's still that recognition of 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 loss and fading and twilight, which does seem it, which it does seem that Lorien is sort of denying. Um, yeah, um, yeah, Timothy, it's not that uh, Elvendom is at high noon in Lorien. Um, they she wishes that he could have seen them in their morning or their afternoon that you know she recognizes that they're in their twilight but there's i think that one of the things that we can see is a kind of tension between what she knows to be what galadriel knows to be true what everybody recognizes that the elves are fading that their time is coming to an end that frodo's arrival is as the the you know the the coming of doom but lorien itself in its current existence denies that fact um, is almost a sort of a wishful thinking kind of denial of it um, yeah yeah um, yes Nate, Galadriel was around in the days of Blight and Valinor. No, he hadn't decided Galadriel's history yet. He was still changing Galadriel's history on his deathbed, so uh, no, he's certainly not done with Galadriel's history, and it undergoes some very serious changes. Um, That is, he he had been thinking it and rethinking it in different ways. But, um... uh, yeah, well, we'll look at that in a second. We'll look at her her sort of discussion of her history and see what what is emphasized in our passage here. Um, so, actually, let's uh, let's go ahead and move on to that. Here are Galadriel's words when she is meeting the company the first time there. Your quest is known to us," said Galadriel, looking at Frodo. And I should say before I continue reading, as I'm reading, what I want you to be focusing on and thinking about. What do we learn about Galadriel herself? How do we figure out what she's doing? Um, I didn't put in this quotation um, the sort of little mini-debate that Aragorn and Boromir have later, you know, where where Boromir says that he's not sure if he trusts, as I have in the quotation there at the top, this elvish lady and her purposes. Um, and Aragorn is like, shut up. <laughs> right? But it, the, the discussion doesn't get much further than that. Um, so uh, I want to be thinking, what do we learn about Galadriel, about her nature, about her character, about her motivations? What, do we, what does she show us here? Um, how are we supposed to be taking this, especially in the context of what we've seen about Lothlorien so far? Your quest is known to us, said Galadriel, looking at Frodo, but we will not here speak of it more openly. 
Yet not in vain will it prove, maybe, that you came to this land seeking aid, as Gandalf himself plainly purposed. For the Lord of the Galothrim is accounted the wisest of the elves of Middle-earth, and a giver of gifts beyond the power of kings. He has dwelt in the west since the days of dawn, and I have dwelt with him years uncounted. For ere the fall of Nargothrond or Gondolin, I passed over the mountains, and together through ages of the world we have fought the long defeat. I it was who first summoned the White Council, and if my designs had not gone amiss it would have been governed by Gandalf the Grey, and then mayhap things would have gone otherwise. But even now there is hope left. I will not give you counsel, saying do this or do that, for not in doing or contriving, nor in choosing between this course and another can I avail, but only in knowing what was and is, and in part also what shall be. But this I will say to you, your quest stands upon the edge of a knife, Stray but a little, and it will fail, to the ruin of all. Yet hope remains, while all the company is true. With that, and with that word, she held them with her eyes, and in silence looked searchingly at each of them in turn. None save Legolas and Aragorn could long endure her glance. Sam quickly blushed and hung his head. At length the Lady Goadriel released them from her eyes, and she smiled. Do not let your hearts be troubled, she said. Tonight you shall sleep in peace. Then they sighed and felt suddenly weary, as those who have been questioned long and deeply, though no words had been spoken openly. Okay. What do you see here? What do you notice? Tell me, what have we learned about Galandriel um, herself, what she's like, her background, her character, her uh, actions and intentions? What do we see? Um, yes, <laughs> we see that she is a mind reader. We see her. I actually... Um, I kind of liked the in the film the sort of Kate Blanchett voiceover in Frodo's mind. Um, that is the fact that that happened. Um, she clearly um, has power over people's minds. Um, she can uh, she can read their thoughts and she can put thoughts in their heads. Um, yeah, we certainly learn that she's capable of that. Um, Giselle, I've always found that line hilarious, I have to say. Giselle says, It's a little odd that she talks about the wisdom of the Lord of the Galathrim, but she does almost all of the talking, and he hardly says anything. Yeah, and the only time he does talk, he totally puts his foot in his mouth, and she has to rebuke him. He would be rash indeed that said that thing. Um, and she's like, just, so she totally has to cover up for him. Um, this this has always has sounded... I mean, I'm sure it's true, and Celeborn is probably very wise indeed, but... Um, but uh, but it totally sounds like she's just trying to sort of butter up her husband here and make him sound like he's like she doesn't wear the pants in this relationship, which she obviously does. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, I mean, Kelleborn married up. There's no two ways about this. And uh, but she's very kind. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. It's, uh, that's that's very interesting. Nate, who has a much more mature comment about this than I do, says, Galadriel starts by praising Celeborn as a traditional king, right out of Homer, giver of gifts, but then goes on to describe herself as a source of knowledge and wisdom. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I think that that's... Um, he is described as having sort of the power of the king there. Um, but... Um, yeah, Yanis Lysa says she's going to leave Middle Earth without him. Yes, you know, briefly. You know, what's a what's a few hundred years or whatever between elves, I guess. Um, 
Yeah, Trish says, Her rejection of the ring is not a given when the fellowship arrives. Though the speech is to the others, I sense that her knowledge that the ring is there in front of her is presenting her with the choice, but the decision is not yet made. Um, yeah, I mean, it's you can see, and I think this is one of the things which um, sort of in retrospect really changes. Um, it sounds like she's just talking about them. She just sounds like a kind of oracle, right? Um this I will say to you, your quest stands upon the edge of a knife. Stray but a little, and it will fail to the ruin of all. Um, that just sounds like uh, she's just talking about them, right? This I predict. Um, this I caution. This I warn. But, Trish, I agree. In retrospect, after her temptation with the ring and her confession that she has long desired it, um, I think that we can see a second meaning in those words. Um, yes, their quest stands on the edge of a knife. They are this close to having the ring of power seized by one of the most powerful creatures in Middle-earth. Um, stray but a little when it will fail to the ruin of all. Hope remains while all the company is true. Oh, and also while she remains true and makes a good choice too. Um, yes, I do think that this is... Um, we do see that tension there. And again, it, it's, it's another one of those... It, it even more, I think, emphasizes the significance of that line, on the land of Lorien there was no stain. Right, we can see she. We can see the stain in her. Again, it's not like glaringly obvious. She's not like drooling for the ring right here. But it's. Um, but again, certainly in retrospect, I think that we can see that force. I agree with you, Trish. It is not a given yet. Um, she says, "I pass the test." Right. Um, she doesn't know that she's going going to pass. She's not sure she's going to pass the test until the test actually happens. Um, and Sharon. That's a good point. She's, uh, Sharon says she's full of doom, but then says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Uh, yeah, easy for you to say. And and, and worse, Sharon, um, there's something this close to hypocrisy in that statement. She just troubled their hearts, every one of them, right? You know, she just put these visions in their heads, you know, sort of, which are testing them, um, but which Boromir very understandably says, I almost thought she was tempting us. Well, the difference between a temptation and a test can be a very fine line. The only difference in some sense... I mean, the exactly the same thing can serve as either one, depending on the motivation of the person. If the person is trying to corrupt somebody, it's a temptation. Um, if their, if their uh, purposes are good, and they're trying to instruct benevolently, then it's just a test, right? Um, but yeah, there's a fine line between those things. So having just troubled all of their hearts, she's like, don't let your hearts be troubled. Um, and again, I'm not saying that she's being openly hypocritical there. Um, but, uh, I mean, one can see that also as a kind of reassurance, a kind of, you know, the test is over. Um, you know, I am not going to trouble you any further. But, um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, I find that a really striking moment for that reason. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Sarah, I agree. Her reference to all of the company uh, remaining true is she is definitely singling out Boromir. Um, uh, yeah, Sarah says, but I bet Boromir, you know, the, 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 the rest of the company don't pick up on it, but I bet Boromir knows, which drives him crazy, possibly. Possibly. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, You know, 
Sarah, I agree. You know, um, Sarah says, I think Galadriel has good intentions here, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You know, this is something that is really, I think, a genuinely open question here. Um, Does Galadriel do harm? Does she do harm? Um, Sam, after the fact... Um, that it, remember when he's talking to Faramir in the Two Towers, says that he thinks that it was in Lorien that Boromir finally saw clearly what he wanted. We know that Boromir's been tempted by the ring from the beginning. He didn't want to destroy it at the council. He wanted to claim it, you know, not necessarily personally, but he thought that they should use it. Um, you know, it's been it's been there. It's not like you know, she gives him this she gives him this sort of tempting vision. And he's like. Wait, the ring! Great idea! I mean, obviously he's thought of this before, but um, but at the same time, it does seem to have an impact on him. It is only after this point that he becomes completely obsessed. And again, Sam's language there is very... It's only there that he saw clearly what he wanted. Um, you know, that he had been kind of struggling against the temptation to the point of not even really admitting to himself what he really wanted. But when confronted with this vision by Galandriel, she shows him what he really wants in his heart. Again, with for good purposes, right? To test his heart. Um, and to... But... But it does kind of seem like once that idea is planted, it bears fruit. Um, and, uh, I, you know, so I think that it's... Um, yeah, it, Erica was just pointing that. Yeah, it's exactly. It's a conversation that I had with uh, with uh, Michael Drought where he, w- where, where he was sort of suggesting that. And ever since he suggested that, I've been thinking about that more and more. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the question... Uh, it, what uh, Michael Jodd followed that up with was saying, you know, what gives her the right to do this? Is she actually overstepping here? Um, she's So she's testing the hearts of the company. Why? Why? She just said, um, uh, you know, I will not give you counsel saying do this or do that, for not in doing or contriving or in, nor in choosing between this course and another can I avail, but only in knowing what was and is and in part also what shall be. Okay, so if you're not... I mean, it would be one thing if she were contriving or choosing or doing, right? Um, like Basically, if she had tested everybody and she were to go to Aragorn later on and be like, okay, dude, I gotta tell you, like, you know, this, this Gondorian fella you know, this guy, he's a ticking time bomb, man, I gotta tell you. Like, he is this close to going over the edge. Um, you know, I wouldn't trust him. But that would be doing. That would be contriving. That would be choosing between this course and another. If she's not gonna do that, what is the outcome of her test? She seems to, um, you know, she, 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 she doesn't say anything. She doesn't do. Anything. She gives gifts, but her gift to Boromir, the belt, certainly doesn't have anything to do, um, you know, with like the test or his passing of the test. Um, I mean, I think that it's. Uh, I, I, I think that it's a genuinely good question. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, Timothy, I agree. She's a, she is a truth reviewer. That does seem like a fair way to describe it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I agree, Jeff. There's no question. It would be obviously be going way too far to say Boromir's fa- uh, fall totally Galadriel's fault. No, it's not. As you say, Jeff, absolutely. Um, you know, she might have revealed to Boromir what he desired, but he was the one to ultimately make the choice. He was continuously tested to withstand the knowledge that he that has been given to him. Absolutely, yes. Um, no, absolutely, he is responsible. But um, he, but again, it, it does seem that. The idea is most firmly planted. Then that basically, I don't think she did him any favors. <laughs> At the end of the day, I don't think she did him any favors. Um, uh, but again, I think that you know, um, right? You know, Tyson. I think you can say she's trying to help the company better understand themselves. Um, and it may well be that the revelation of this secret desire to Boromir is necessary. That it's necessary for him to confront that. Um, and maybe things would have gone worse in some ways had he not... I mean, it's like it's a little bit hard to see how he could have fallen, but he could have. I mean, he definitely could have done worse than he did. Um, and um, as what he, what he ultimately falls to is basically what he eventually gets to is being honest with himself and with Frodo about what he really wants and what he really plans to do. Um, and, you know, one I guess one could argue that if she had not um, sort of helped him to understand himself in this way, it might have been worse. He still would not... I mean, what would have happened at Parthgal and otherwise? You know, they would have gotten down there and Frodo would have said, okay, I'm headed off to Mordor, um, have fun in Minas Tirith, Boromir. Then what does Boromir do? Um he still wouldn't want... For, you know, he still then would be confronted with the choice. Does he just let the ring go? Um, I'm not sure he would have, and how might that have played out? Um, had Instead of going to Frodo and saying, I have thought through this idea, and, you know, and I've rationalized it to myself, and, um, you know, let me make trial of my plan. Um, it, and again, can't say what would have happened otherwise, but... Um, uh, but yeah, um, yeah. You know, Sarah. It is. Uh, I mean, it's it's it is a little bit like um, it. It is a little bit like playing God. What she's doing here. Um, yeah, yeah. And I agree, Timothy, that she is an agent of providence. But again, what she does take upon herself does seem to be a little bit sort of over the top. Yeah, as you know, Robert says, no one is told what would have happened, right? Exactly. We don't know. We don't know. Uh, uh, exactly. Aslan's words apply to us <laughs> here uh, as uh, to the Pevensies. But, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I, I, but I think that that's, that's sort of an interesting dynamic here and does especially thinking, you know, of, uh, I think, Trish, what you were talking about earlier, um, sort of looking back at this scene after the mirror of Galadriel, scene after Galadriel's own temptation um, with the Regan, Frodo's gentle revenge for the testing of his heart, um, I think that we can see she is... She doesn't... It's not like she's acting like Sauron. She's very different. But... Gandalf never has acted this way towards people. Elrond doesn't act this way towards people. Um, she is... 
that uh, testing of their hearts is she's taking a lot on herself. Um, it's kind of a big deal, um, and I think that that's I think that that's kind of in- that is kind of revealing, and does certainly at the least help us to set up um, her temptation for the ring. She is not like Sauron yet, but we can see perhaps a glimpse of the direction she would go, um, how she would become that, you know, how how we could get from here to all would love me in despair. You know, that path, we can imagine that path, I think. This scene perhaps helps us to imagine that path. Um, and again, I love the fact that Aragorn doesn't uh, have any argument against it. Again, when Boromir says... And again, but what Boromir's he's it's kind of reasonable. I mean, you know, he's like, that's I you know, I'm not so certain about this elvish lady and her purposes. Like, okay, like, you know, fair, fair enough. Um but Aragorn's just like, shut up, don't say that. <laughs> um But uh you know, he says, There is in her no evil. Not sure that's true, Aragorn. Not sure that's true. Um I'm not sure Aragorn wins that argument, but um I don't think you know Tim, it, uh, Timothy says I, I think it's open to question whether she does this on her own or at some higher prompting. Um, yeah, I mean I agree she is an agent of providence, but everybody's an agent of providence, um, and I don't think that that is. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't see any other occasion on which somebody acts out like, as the direct sort of, like, knowing instrument of Iluvatar in these stories. They act as unknowing agents of Iluvatar, and they, the... I mean, I honestly, I think the closest that we get is the comment that I already quoted before, when where Elrond says, if I understand to write all that I have heard, it seems that this task is appointed to you, Frodo. Um, that's a moment where I think we see Elrond, not necessarily into the mind of Iluvatar, but what I see there is, like, him thinking about the music, essentially, and being like, does this fit? Um, is does is this how the music goes? Does this seem like the... And then, you know, and basically him saying, like, you know, this this works. I think this works. Um, based on everything that I have seen about how the world works and how things are put together and the way that, um, that the music functions and how Iluvatar unfolds things, Frodo carrying the ring totally makes sense. Uh, that's what I hear Aragorn, or Elrond saying when he's saying that. Galadriel's actions are different. Um, no, she's not just anybody, but she is anybody. She's not a god. Um, she is not a god. Um, she is She is not in a different place from from Elrond. Not that different. Yes, she's older. Yes, yes, she's been to Valinor. So is, Go- so is Gorfindel. We don't see him doing this. Um... So, um, I mean, heck, if anything, Gorfindel should have, has better right um, after his whole resurrection experience. But, um, yeah, yeah, right, David, exactly. Uh, yeah, Aragorn is sticking up is sticking up for uh, for his grandmother in law. Um, yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> He's he is uh, biased in her favor. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 
Good, yeah, Nate is just pointing exactly to the same thing. Both of you type that at, at the same time. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And she's, she's Sauron's mother-in-law, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, interesting. Nate says, uh, Aragorn's love for Arwen, um, based in part on their time together in Lorien and Goadriel's active role in setting them up, might have blinded him to her nature. He is wise, but does he understand Goadriel? If so, I don't know that he'd have brought the ring there. Men of Rohan and Gondor are a bit closer to the truth than he wants to admit. Yeah, I mean, of course... The, what they say of her in Rohan isn't true, and we're told in the appendix that she actually played an active role in protecting the host of Aerol the Young as he came down from the north and all that. So, um, so that's you know that's all. Well, no, wait, that's not. It's an unfinished tale, isn't it? Anyway, um, um, what well, most of the unfinished tale stuff is stuff that didn't get in the appendix because he didn't want it to be impossibly long. But anyway, um, so no, I mean it's still not. Uh, uh, it's still not quite fair, but um, uh, but yeah, it's um, uh, I I wonder how surprised Aragorn would be had he been there with Frodo and Sam at the testing of Galadriel, um, because remember this goes back to some of the stuff we were talking about about Karen Amroth. There is. There is an extent to which this world that she has created in Lorien is a fiction. Um, you know, as we were talking about before, you know, on the land of Lorien, there's no stain. Well, no, but that's artificial. Um, it's constructed that way. Um, so, I mean, it's there's. I, I, I don't want to be too strong about this. I don't want to say like you know, Love Lorian is a lie. It's all a lie. I mean, it's because that's that's totally missing the point of it. Um, but she is what she has created in the land and kingdom of Lothlorien is not her whole story. And it is not a projection of her whole heart and who she is. Um, it's her choice, you can say. It's a good thing because it reflects... That's what she has chosen. That's the world that she has chosen to create around herself. And that's a good thing. Um, but it certainly does not mean that there is in her no evil, as Aragorn says. That's not true. Even if it might be true that there is on the that there's no stain on the land. Um... Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Well, in, in uh, light of this, I want to move on to her song. We'll get some more evidence here. This is the song that we hear her singing. It's my favorite Go Adriel song. I sang of leaves, of leaves of gold, and leaves of gold there grew. Of wind I sang, a wind there came, and, and in the branches blew. Beyond the sun, beyond the moon, the foam was on the sea, and by the strand of Ilmarin there grew a golden tree. Beneath the stars of Evereve and Eldamar it shone, in Eldamar beside the walls of Elven Tyrion. There long the golden leaves have grown upon the branching years, while here beyond the sundering seas now fall the elven tears. O Lorien, the winter comes, the bare and leafless day. 
The leaves are falling in the stream, the river flows away. O Lorien, too long I have dwelt upon this hither shore, and in a fading crown have twined the golden Eleanor. But if of ships I now should sing, what ship would come to me? What ship would bear me ever back across so wide a sea? All right. I could totally spend the rest of the class talking about this. And I might spend most of the rest of the class talking about this. Um, what do we learn about Goadriel here? I'll throw out the first freebie. Um, the overall structure of the opening part of this poem, note sort of the pattern that she talks about things. She starts off in the first two lines ta- singing about Lothlorien and the creation of Lothlorien. I sang of leaves, of leaves of gold, and leaves of gold there grew. Why are there mowing trees in Lorien and nowhere else on earth? Because Goadriel invented them, that's why. She sang of them, and they came. Um, so this is what I wanted to come back to um, from before. Was it you know, Jeff and I think Nate were talking about this up at the beginning, if I'm remembering, um, about being inside a song. Um, uh, they were inside a song, right? I mean, that is like she. T- t- this was her song. She sang this. She sang this. This world into being. Um, this land into being. Okay, so we have the Malorn trees, the leaves of gold that she that grew, and then she moves to the memory of the golden tree in Valinor that she recalls by the strand of Ilmarin, beneath the stars of Evereve and Eldamar, beside the walls of Elven Tyrion. So she's talking about the golden tree that grew there in Valinor. There long the golden leaves, now the golden leaves in question here, are what? She's still talking about Valinor. There, there long the golden leaves have grown upon the branching years, while here, beyond the sundering seas, now fall the elven tears. So we have her life in Lothlorien, which she has made, being placed next to the uh, life that she remembers in Valinor. We've got the golden leaves that she has sung into being, and the golden tree back in Valinor, of which the Maorn is a kind of reflection. And then she talks about Lorien, the winter comes... The leaves are falling in the stream. Now, these are her leaves, right? The leaves of gold. The Malorn leaves are falling in the stream, and the river flows away. And then, I, and, and to me, one of the most poignant lines in the entire song, and in a fading crown have twined the golden Eleanor. Um, she, has twi- she has made a golden crown for herself out of Eleanor, um, but it's a fading crown that she has had while she has dwelt on this hither shore. Okay, so more. What else do you see? What do you um what do you what do you notice? Yes, exactly, Sarah. It does sound like Iluvatar in the Vala. She's not singing the whole world into existence, but she's singing Lothlorien into existence. Um Yeah, and she says the Sundering Seas. Yes, yes. Um, we get much more Valinor vocabulary here than we get. And remember, most of this stuff, no one has any idea what we're talking about. Um, in Eldamar, beside the walls of Elven Tyrion. Remember, 1954, everybody's going, uh-huh, okay, sure. Um, that is, these names are designed to be mysterious. Um, 
And I think it's one of the effects. Eldamar is a great name for something that you don't recognize. That is, it, that with the root Eld, which is a coincidence, it's a pun, it doesn't mean old, right, as the, as the root Eld means in English. But, of course, it's a significant echo. It gives a sense by accident, even if we don't understand the Elvish languages of, of antiquity, um, which is what it's pointing back to, beyond the sun, beyond the moon. Um, which I take, by the way, beyond the sun, beyond the moon, um, to be a reference to travel not only in space, but in time. Um, yeah, Liza, interesting observation. That's good. Liza says, she sounds caught. She made it, Lothlorien, but can't leave it. Um, yes, we see her being torn. Um, yes. Yes, she can't sing the ship into existence that would return her to Eldamar. No. If of ships I now should should sing, what ship would come to me? And that, of course, is corresponding directly in the last two lines of the song with those first two lines, right? I sang of leaves, and leaves of gold there grew. Well, ships would be a snap, right? Of ships I sang, uh, you know, a ship there came, uh, right? No. Um... What ship would come to me? What ship would bear me ever back across so wide a sea? Um, she recognizes her own limitations. She can whistle up Maorn trees, but she can't whistle up a ship. Um, she cannot go back across the sea under her own power. Um, she has to be born back. Um, yeah, exactly. Nate, it is a strange transition, and I think it's one of the things that it points... If of ships I now should sing, and Nate says, who was singing about ships? Where do I... Uh, you know, um, um, like, wh- why does she bring that up? Um, but again, I think that that's why. What we have is her thing, you know, um, her torn, as, we're, as Liza was suggesting, between this place that she has made and this place that she loves, and which she doesn't want to leave and hasn't been able to bear to leave, and this place that she remembers, um, which is sort of the reality behind... She has made a kind of copy of that place here in Middle-earth. Um, it's the reality. She she recognizes that Lothlorien is the copy and that her crown here is a fading crown. Um, and so that transition, if of ships I now should sing, well, the reason ships are relevant, it's not arbitrary, right? Because that's the way to get from here to there. Um... So she is imagining the... Um, and that's sort of the poignant thing at the end. The first question is, will I leave? Can I bear to leave? Um, will I be content here in my own little kingdom? Or will I leave? Will I be willing to go back? But of course, for her, that's only the first question. The first question is, are you willing to go back? The second question is, if you are willing, will they take you back? And that's not a given, right? So, or at least apparently not uh, to her. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, and good. Sharon says, Oh, Lorian, she seems to be calling to this land, but it could also be calling out to the Vala Irmo, usually called Lorian. Um, uh, yeah, Irmo means desirer. Yeah, Lorian is the, uh, the name Lorian is ambiguous there. Um, I. Uh, I mean, again, that's that's obviously a pun that's going to be ten feet over the head of the readers in 1954. They have no way of knowing that that Lorien is also a region in Valinor. Um, but knowing that, it's uh, it is uh, uh, a very interesting kind of ambiguity there. Um, and I think even possibly, Sharon, I wouldn't push this too far, but it seems to me at least a possible way to read it, which would be cool. 
Um, she says it twice. Oh, Lorien, the winter comes, the barren leafless day. That seems to be talking about Lothlorien, her Lorien, right? But the second one, Oh, Lorien, too long I have dwelt upon this hither shore, is less certain. I mean, again, we still it's still quite likely her own Lorien, and in a fading crown of twine the golden Eleanor, she's still talking about the hither shore and being here. But, um, but I wonder if that second Oh, Lorien mightn't be read as a kind of a desire for the Lorien that she remembers, for the Valinorian Lorien. Um, say that fast several times. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Sarah, she does go back in a ship. Um, uh, and one of the one of the things is, I agree, Sarah, a kind of humility, right, that it's not like she's not just going to set out and, like, get there on her own. But also, Tolkien speaks uh, in later writings as he's working out this story of a genuine uncertainty there. Basically, that... Um, and again, this he was rethinking and reworking the Galadriel story many times, but one, one thing that he does say later on... One way he was thinking about the story at one point, anyway, is that um, Galadriel could not go back. Um, that at the end of the first age, the exiles, the Noldor, were pardoned and were permitted to return to Valinor if they chose. They can sail and return to Valinor, except Goadriel was not forgiven um, and was not sent back. And it wasn't until she passes the test that she can. She has, because her own heart was still set on, she still had in her heart that desire for dominion uh, for herself and to, to rule a realm at her own desire. And it's not until she passes the test with the Ring of Power that she is then permitted by the Valar to return. That was one way in which Tolkien conceived of the story, which is why you remember, again, it's in, in that version, that would be why she says, um, she says, to Frodo, I pass the test. I shall diminish and pass into the West and remain Goandrio. Um That there is an element, again, in that version of it, that, uh, uh, that basically she is recognizing I passed the test, and by passing the test, I have finally punched my ticket to Valinor. Now I can go back. Um, yeah, Nate says, uh, in some of his writings he speculated on Galadriel as being second only to Feanor in capability, which isn't always a good thing. Yeah, or at least it sets you up for, uh, sets you up for some serious temptation. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Sarah, you're totally ready for the Silmarillion. You're totally ready. Um, okay. Um, ah, Timothy, it is funny that you should mention the uh, the Namarie song a few pages later. That's exactly what I want to talk about next. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and we should do that before before I completely run out of time. Um, let's see. Yeah, Trish, I agree. Uh, Trish is speaking of not knowing stuff in 1954. Readers also didn't understand that she'd been exiled. She doesn't actually mention that tidbit of info. Yeah, the only time we get that is from Gildor, 
um, in the show. Remember, he introduces himself that way. He says, we are exiles. Not that anybody has any idea what that means. Exiled by, from where? By whom? We don't know. Uh, I mean, again, if we, you know, later on, post, uh, post-1977, which is when The Silmarillion was published, 23 years after The Fellowship of the Ring came out, um, uh, so anyway, th- then we finally learn about the the Noldor in exile and and understand that when he says we are exiles, um, you know he's he is saying something which is an approximate approximate synonym to saying you know we are uh, you know of the House of Finrod. That is you know both two ways in which he's identifying himself as 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 Noldor, um, but uh, yeah yeah. Um, Yeah, David, I agree. Thinking of the passing the test thing, um, thinking of this song in the context of the passing the test thing, does make it a little bit more poignant. David says, she sang this song after passing the test, though maybe not yet knowing that she had thus earned her ticket. There is still the question, what ship would ever bear me back across so wide a sea? Um, She seems to be, later on, confident about that. She finds the ship that's going to bear her back across the sea. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there still seems to be this sort of question, and we can see it more again, to, to do the to complete the transition I was attempting. Where are we? Uh-oh. Getting the... Oops. There we go. Okay. Found it. Alright. I'm only giving the Latin, the Latin, the English translation of the, uh, of the Quenya um, here. But here is her benediction. This is what she sings to them in Quenya as they are departing. Right. So these are the last words from Goadriel that we get here before we meet her again at the very end. Ah, like gold fall the leaves in the wind. Notice we start with the golden leaves again, just like before. Long years numberless as the wings of trees. The years have passed like swift drafts of the sweet mead in lofty halls beyond the west, beneath the blue vaults of Varda, wherein the stars tremble in the song of her voice holy and queenly. Who now shall refill the cup for me? For now the kindler, Varda, the queen of the stars, from Mount Everwhite, has uplifted her hands like clouds, and all paths are drowned deep in sorrow. And out of a grey country, darkness lies on the foaming waves between us, and mist covers the jewels of Kalakiria forever. Now lost, lost to those from the east is Valimar. Farewell. Maybe thou shalt find Valimar. Maybe even thou shalt find it. Farewell. Varda is the name of that lady whom the elves in these lands of exile name Elbereth. By the way, that last sentence um, I find fascinating because um, I, 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 I find that sentence a really, really important one because it's one of the only places where the narrator does this. In all of these times that we've looked at, you know, this many times before as we just were in the previous song, you know, Tolkien is throwing out there names and references to things that there is literally no way the contemporary readers in 1954 can understand. Like, they just, they don't know the backstory. The backstory doesn't exist. There are, like, three people on Earth who understand it. You know, when they're reading this, Christopher Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, I mean, just very few people get it. But, um, and so very rarely does it go back and explain it. You know, we don't get, you know, like, for instance, uh, Elrond says to Frodo, you know, uh, if the great elf friends of old, Hador and Hurin and Turin, your place would be among them. Um, 
the narrator does not intervene and say Hurin was, you know, and explain. Here, the narrator intervenes to give us a piece of context, to give us one one connection that will help us to understand the, what was being referred to. Um, Varda is the name of that lady whom the elves in these lands of exile name Elberith. Not that we know exactly who Elberith is, but at least we have had a bunch of references to Elberith before, and, in, and well, we've had several poems about Elberith, and so therefore we should be able to put something together. But we are given that clue, that kind of key. It's like a little, little mini Rosetta Stone to this poem, um, which shows me that Tolkien wants us to understand. He didn't want to just leave this, the references to Varda here, to be sort of uncertain and unclear in the ways that the references to, uh, to Tyrion and Eldamar and all that stuff were in the previous song. Um, anyway, so now uh, more. More stuff that we more stuff that we can see here. Um, all right. <laughs> Nate is suggesting maybe Gandalf brings her boat ticket back on his return. Uh, yeah, maybe. 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 Um, I say, oh, did I misread it? Where did I misread it? Timothy. Uh... Oh, Drowned Deep in Shadow, and I read it as Sorrow. Yes, my apologies. Yes, Drowned Deep in Shadow, and all paths are Drowned Deep in Shadow. Um, yeah, 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 my apologies for that. Um, yes, yes, Nate, Frodo, we're told, Aragorn says that when Frodo calls out that the name of Elbereth hurt the Nazgul more than the knife. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Um, yeah. Good. Two of you, Sharon and Robert, have both asked, what are the wings of trees? I don't know. Good question. Ah, like gold fall the leaves in the wind, long years numberless as the wings of trees. I don't know. I mean, obviously it's a metaphor, right? Um... I mean, I, I don't think we're, we're supposed to understand this in any literal sense. Um, uh, that is, it's talking about leaves. Um, like gold fall the leaves in the wind. Um, if we were... I mean, long years numberless as the leaves of trees would make perfect sense. Um, it, so it seems to be... we potentially still talking... I mean, that is, numberless as the leaves of trees would, would make... Especially over long years... Um, you know the leaves on a tree are already not exactly numberless, but it's a it's a large number and hard to count. Uh, and over centuries and millennia, of course, there, that would become numberless, perhaps, or approximate numberless would would uh, would uh, you know be like an uh, asymptote on numberlessness. But so so maybe then we're to understand this as uh, that wings is being used as a metaphor for leaves here. Um, we do segue from there to the years passing like uh with the years passing swiftly um the falling of the leaves from the trees is depicted as a marking of time um at the beginning there and so if we're talking about the years passing swiftly um you know maybe in that sense leaves are being connected with wings uh, i'm not really sure um uh 
Yeah, I mean, it, and it could be. I mean, Timothy, it could be branches. Yeah, I mean, it could be branches. Um, I, yeah, it's possible. Um, I mean, visually, that's a more that that seems more sort of suggestive, as you say, like you know, leaves are being are as feathers on the on the wings of the trees. Yes, yeah, I agree. Uh, visually, that would work. Um, my problem is I don't see exactly the point of the metaphor. Or rather, to say it the other way around, the only point I can see to the metaphor is the reference to the swiftness of the passing of time. Um, anyway, I don't want to get too bogged down on the on the, the metaphor here. Um, more on the overall, like, what's, what's going on here? What is this? What is this poem saying? This is, of course, the prose translation of the poem. But um, what is this about? Okay, so years are passing, right? Long years, numberless as the wings of trees. All right, years are passing like swift drafts of the sweet mead in lofty halls beyond the west. That's how the years have passed, like mead being drunk in the west. I guess they drink it fast. <laughs> being facetious now. But anyway, okay. Beneath the blue vaults of Varda. Okay. Who now shall refill the cup for me? That's, if not the exact center of the poem, this is, seems to be the central question, right? Um, we certainly, the question that every, that all of this reference to the passing of time and winged trees and sweet mead have been leading up to. This seems to be the real concern of the question. Who now shall refill the cup for me? For now the kindler has uplifted her hands like clouds, and all paths are drowned deep in shadow. And Timothy likes my misreading. Uh, deep in sorrow works. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. Yes, the blue vaults are the sky, Sarah, there. Um, Timothy, did Varda sing the stars into being? Yes, she did. That is why she is called the kindler. Yes. Um, the kindler and queen of the stars. So again, notice... We're being taught that here, and, and we're being taught that because of that connection between Varda and Elbereth that is explained to us there at the end. Um, we are, you know, we have already had the association between Elbereth and the stars, not just in the songs, even by Bilbo, right? Looking out at the stars of Elbereth, he says. Um, so we know that the stars are associated with El- with Elbereth in some way, and so Varda, in her Quenya name here, um, is being called, is being flanked by her two titles, Queen of the Stars and the Kindler, which when we put together, teaches us that Varda, Elbereth, is the one who brought the stars into being. And so, if she has uplifted her hands like clouds and all paths are drowned in deep shadow, that sounds like she is obscuring the stars. Um, she is the source of light, and yet, when if her, she is uplifting her hands like clouds, covering the stars, covering the lights, um, and all paths are drowned in shadow. Out of a gray country, darkness lies on the foaming waves between us and mist covers the jewels of Calakiria forever. Now lost, lost to those from the east, is Valimar. So what she's talking about there is not just like shadow being cast over all of Middle-earth. She is talking about the obscuring and the hiding of Valinor. She's talking about the separation. Where is the deep shadow lying? The darkness lies on the foaming waves between us. Mist covers the jewels of Calakiria forever. We don't know what Calakiria... Well, we don't know here what Calakiria is. We learn in Silmarillion. But again, that's another totally unexplained word in 1954. But 
We don't need to know, because we know that lost, lost to those from the east, is Valimar. Um, Varda, at least in this poem, has concealed Valinor from Middle-earth. Farewell. Maybe now we get finally around to what seems like the relevant bit, saying goodbye. That's what she was doing, right? Farewell. Maybe thou shalt find Valimar. Maybe even thou shalt find it. Farewell. And you'll notice what there is no reference to at the end is her finding Valimar, right? Of her return. Um, fair, maybe, maybe, you'll, maybe even you will find it. Maybe even thou shalt find it. Um, but she doesn't answer the question, who now shall refill the cup for me? Um, yeah, lots of stuff. So let's see. Um, yes, Nate. Uh, Nate says, Gwadjil describes Varda as a creator, yes, as singing things into being, as she described herself in the last song. Um, yes, Liza says, Gwadjil feels cut off from Valinor and from Varda, and fears she will diminish in Middle-earth and not be returning to Valinor. Um, it seems clearer now she wants to go back to Valinor. She's less torn about staying and leaving, I agree. Um, and I think that the transition, the reference to the to the like gold like, like gold fall the leaves in the wind, we only get a reference to the falling of the leaves in Val in in La Florian, and and then they're forgot about. And from then on, uh, the vision of this poem is focused entirely upon Valinor. So I agree, Liz. If we saw her being sort of divided between the two in the previous poem, this second poem is not divided. Um, but I agree, it's still. Um, that she might not be allowed to renew herself by returning to Valinor, who shall, who now shall refill the cup for me? Um, that cup, of course, is the about the sweet mead, right? The swift drafts of the sweet mead in the lofty halls beyond the west, and she's got an empty cup, um, which needs to be refilled. Yes, very good. Um, yeah, yeah. No, sir, I think you were right on about the shadows there. Um, Yes, Trish, I agree. As you know, you're agreeing with Liza, there it does sound as if she believes herself to be shut out. Um, yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, Timothy says, uh, uh, very interesting, the connection between the gray country that she describes here and the far green country that Frodo sees in his dream. Uh, by the way, one of the things that we still didn't get a chance to talk about that I would have loved to talk about uh, is the dreams, Frodo's dreams especially. Really fascinating stuff, but... Um, anyway, okay. Yeah, as, you know, as Jeff says, she is offering a benediction that the company finds their Eden, and even more poignantly, her Eden, right? Um, maybe even thou shalt find it. Um, you know, it, it's not like a... She's not doing a pity party. There's no like, I never will, but maybe you will, you know? Um, she's not Eeyore, right? Some can and some can't. Um, it does... It, it is a genuine, sort of a genuinely generous benediction there at the end. We see sort of the poignancy of her, descri of her description, um, how um, painfully conscious she is of the obscuring of Valinor and that separation between her and it, and yet that final benediction of maybe even thou shalt find it, I think is, um, is, is powerful. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and Sarah, very good. The connecting, uh, connecting this, the cup that she mentions with the cup of parting. 
um, that she drinks with them beforehand. Um, I think that, that that is an image that we should be remembering. It, that within the poem, the reference seems to be to those drafts of the sweet mead in lofty halls, um, but but I, we should have in our heads, you know, we have drunk the cup of parting, right? Um, it is a cup of parting, um, in a sense that she is she is thinking of. So yeah, um, and as Timothy says, there's sort of an added level of poignancy here. Um, maybe even thou shalt find it. Um, I think Timothy, that you are right to say thou equals Frodo. Um, Keep in mind, first of all, thou is the second person singular pronoun. Um, if she were saying to the whole company, you know, hey, maybe some of you or all of you will find... I, I might not, but maybe you guys will. She would say you. Um, it doesn't matter if it's archaic. Thou is the archaic second person singular form of the pronoun. Um, in Middle English, they said you. That's where the word you comes from. It was always the plural form. Um, so, uh, um, you know, you is the object form, ye is the nominative form. Um, but anyway, yeah, it, it's... it's so, so, Timothy, I do think thou equals Frodo, because remember we're told this stuck in Frodo's mind, and he went back and translated it years later, right? You know, or later on, anyway. Um, is it stuck in his mind? Um, because I do think it is addressed to him, and of course, he will find it. Um, uh yeah, exactly, and he will. He will, in fact, go go to Valinor. Um, uh, yeah, Sharon, that's an interesting connection. Uh, Sharon says it sounds like one of the lamenting psalms. It does. I think it, they're, they're, that's the, that's an interesting comparison. Um, yeah, we have to look at that a little bit more closely, but I do think that that's an interesting. Uh, 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 thing there. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Of course, as, as Nate says, actually, of course, as it turns out, almost half the company will go to Valinor. I mean, actually, more of them will go... Is it true more of them will go than not? No, not quite true. Um, no, not quite true. Not if you don't count Gandalf. Gandalf's the tiebreaker, right? Um, Boromir, Aragorn, Merry, and Pippin won't go. Frodo, Sam, Gimli, and Legolas will go. Gandalf is the tiebreaker, and he's got the, the like commuter pass, I guess. Um, but uh, but yeah, yeah. It, nevertheless, I think it's. Uh, I, I I don't think. Uh, I don't think she anticipates that at this point. Um, anyway, okay. Um, there's so much more that we could talk about. This was really good, though. I, this is again another one of those things. Um, Every single time I have ever taught the Fellowship of the Ring, I felt like I just did really because, of course, when doing these last few chapters, I always focus on you know the temptation of the Ring and Boromir and his own process of rationalization and what's going on with Frodo and all of this stuff, um, and I almost never am able to give Galadriel and her songs the time I would want to give them. So, um, so yeah, I'm glad that we uh, I'm glad that we got to do that anyway. Even though there's so many other things, I would love to talk about Sam more. Even just the one glimpse of Sam that we got tonight, I think, is a wonderful 
illustration of one of the roles that he plays. He is the one who puts into words. He is, in some sense, as we said before, um, the most poetic member of the Fellowship. He's the one who gets it. He's the one who sees. He's always the one who can put into words things that nobody else can explain or understand. Um, uh, anyway, I think it's... Uh, um, I think it's good. No, 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 Charlie. We don't. We I have to go. Uh, we we definitely have to go because uh, somebody else uh, needs to use the classroom here. So, um, so I so I definitely have to go. But I. Uh, but thank you guys for joining me. This has been uh, this has been tremendous fun. I have uh, you know, as I say, this has been a, a wonderful experience for me. Uh, as many times as I have taught uh, Tolkien and have taught this book. Um, you know, as I, I, it has been a, so delightful to get to talk through things that I've never been able to talk through before, and to see things that I have never noticed before. Uh, so, thank you very much, and I appreciate your joining me. And I hope we can. Uh, you know, I would love to to con- you know, One thing I'm thinking about is how we might be able to continue this. I'd love to do the Two Towers and the Return of the King in the same in the same vein, if we could. Um, so, uh, I will kind of keep thinking about this, and uh, and uh, we will. Uh, um, you know, and we'll, we'll sort of see how we can work that out. But I'll definitely, I'll definitely stay, uh, stay in touch about that. So, anyway, thanks very much, everybody. Good night. <laughs>